Welcome to a breath of fresh air with Sandy Kay. Because it's a beautiful day. Mm-hmm. A breath of fresh air. Beautiful day. Oh, baby, any day that you're gone away. It's a beautiful day. Hi, how's your week been? I hope you've been having fun. I've been in a bit of a reflective mood, probably something to do with the time of year. Over the past 12 months, I've had the real privilege of getting to take part in some fascinating conversations with some pretty notable people in the world of the 60s, 70s and 80s music. That truly is one of the great rewards of doing this work. Along the way, there have been some conversations that stand out for me, chats that really resonate for one reason or another, and these are some of the ones that I'd like to share with you today. We're going to meet one of the nicest, most uplifting and funny people I've spoken to. His name is Peter Noon, and you probably remember him as the lead singer and founder of that 60s English band, Herman's Hermits. We're also going to check in with American blues rock guitarist, Walter Trout. You may or may not have heard his name, but once you hear his music and his story, he's not someone you'll easily forget. But first today, his granddaughter refers to him as the Justin Bieber of the 60s, and for very good reason. He was the king of bubblegum and hugely popular the world over. But as you're about to hear, Tommy Rowe didn't set out to father a whole new genre of music. He actually managed to cut some pretty decent rockers along the way too. Tommy Rowe, fantastic to talk to you. It's been my whole life that I've wanted to have a chat with you. Well, thank you. We kind of grew up together, didn't we? We certainly did. Just I knew a whole lot more about you than you knew about me. You know, I started so young. I was like 14 years old when my dad taught me a few chords on the guitar. And I wrote Sheila. As soon as I learned how to play the guitar, that was one of the first songs I wrote. It was originally called Frida, Sweet Little Frida. It was a poem that I had written for this uh, little girl I used to chase around the playground. And I kind of had a crush on her. Her name was Frida. Once Dad taught me the three chords on the guitar, I thought, you know, maybe I could put some of these little poems to music and maybe become a songwriter. So my whole initial thinking was I wanted to be a songwriter. I never dreamed of being a performer, really. But I I love the idea of writing songs. So I just started writing songs and I'd play in talent shows and I would play wherever they'd let me play, you know, when I was... (laughs) like 14, 15 years old, and I had a little band in school. So we played at school dances. Before we leave, Frida, did she know that you'd written the song about her? Yeah, it's it's kind of a terrible ending because, you know, before I was able to give her the poem, she just didn't show up at school anymore. She moved away. And so she never knew about the poem. She never knew about the poem becoming Sheila. As far as I know, I mean, I've never heard from her. But um, it was kind of unfortunate because... Uh, I really had a crush on the little girl. We we used to have a lot of fun together on the playground and 14 years old, you know, that's uh, that's about as far as it goes. And you don't know whatever became of her? I don't know. I mean, wouldn't that be an interesting thing to put it out on, on the internet yeah. and see if you could find her? It sure would. I mean, she deserves to know. Well, surely. you know, it's interesting. I've talked about this for years in interviews and I, I always thought one, one of these days I'll be at a concert, she's going to show up. But it's never happened, so it's just one of those mysterious things. Hopefully she's still with us. Sweet little Sheila, you know her if you see her. Blue eyes and a ponytail. Her cheeks are rosy, she looks a little nosy. Man, this little girl is fine. Never knew a girl. get to be called Sheila after it was initially well, called Frida? Well, 
Yeah, I auditioned for a record producer in Atlanta, and he wanted to hear my songs. I sang, I sang Frida for him. And he said, man, I really like that song Frida, but I'm not crazy about the title. For some reason, he didn't like the title of Frida. I mean, I thought it was kind of cool, you know? But anyway, he talked me into changing it, and then we changed the title. We just changed it to Sheila because it fits so well and sang so well. Then I recorded it, and it was uh, the first version I did. I was still in high school, and it was kind of a hit around the South. And then um, after I graduated from high school, I uh, met my my friend who became my producer, and uh, he wanted to record me. He wanted to re-record Sheila. And he said, we're going to do it as like a tribute to Buddy Holly, and we're going to put some different drum sounds in it because my original version was just two four drums it didn't have the rolling thunderous drums you know actually Sheila was supposed to be the b-side of the record and uh, Save Your Kisses was supposed to be the a-side they released it and there was a DJ in Baltimore who flipped the record played the b-side and it just became a huge hit in Baltimore Maryland and it just went from there, spread all over. It was my first number one, my first gold record. All in all, you you wrote and co-wrote, recorded six top ten hits between 1962 and 69, and that, of course, was more than any single artist or songwriter during that period of the 60s. Yeah, it's it's pretty amazing. I had two number ones. Of course, Dizzy went to, went to number one as well. Tommy, tell me a little bit about Dizzy. Well, Dizzy came about. I was invited by Dick Clark to come to California and he was doing a new show out here called the, where the action is in 1965. And so he wanted me to be a regular on this show. So I moved, I came out to California. We did the shows and everything. And I never went back to New York. I fell in love with this place. So I ended up staying in California and, uh, I was a, for three years, I was a regular on that show where the action would, would air every afternoon about four o'clock. And uh, Paul Revere and the Raiders were also on the show as regulars. And uh, Paul lost his guitar player. He didn't want to be a Raider anymore. And he was asking me one afternoon if I knew somebody that might want, want the gig. And I suggested he call my old friend in Atlanta, Freddie Weller. So he got in touch with Freddie. Freddie came out and auditioned and got the job. Well, we were touring a lot then, you know, together. with I was touring a lot with Paul Revere and the Raiders on the Dick Clark Caravan of Stars. And all of a sudden, we, we were on the bus together going from gig to gig and we started writing songs and we wrote a couple of songs and then Dizzy was like the third song we wrote. So we started writing it one night on a trip on the, after a show, we had to drive all night to get to the next gig. And we started writing it on that bus tour that night and uh, we finished it up later. And then you know, I went in the studio and recorded it. I, I knew that's, that was one of the few songs that I recorded that I knew when I left the studio, it was a hit. became a number one has turned out to be my biggest record. It was number one for four weeks in Billboard. So it was a big record. It's been covered by a lot of people as well, a lot of different artists. It's been covered 22 times. Spent 15 weeks on the Billboard Top 100. What, what was the inspiration for that song? What are you talking about in the lyrics? You know, I don't know what inspired it really. It was just, I, I always started writing songs. I would try to get a catchy title and a, just a, a short title, not a long title. One word titles were great. You know, I had, of course, Sheila and everybody, Sweet Pea. They're all very short titles. And uh, 
the word dizzy just attracting because there's a lot you can write about that you know it's you know so that was the that was the take we, we uh you know lyrically we we went in that direction just to try to make it a fun song so what were so, you so dizzy about i was always dizzy <laughs> I was dizzy from the beginning. I'm still dizzy. Is that a word that describes you? Yeah, very much so. I, you know, I've had an incredible career, and I've I've traveled all over the world. I, I was talking to my granddaughter the other day. She's she's on her way out here to California now, but uh, she she's a real jewel. I really love hanging out with her. Uh, she just came back from Israel. She went to Israel to uh, she went to college there in Haifa, University of Haifa. And um, she just got back and she's get, kind of getting s- suited to everything back in the States, you know. And uh, I love talking with, with her about music because it's so different in her generation. You know, she, yeah. she looks at my record collection like it's a big blob of nothing. You know, it's like, <laughs> where do you store all that stuff? You know, kids today, they don't give them a backpack and a phone and they, they're ready to go. Absolutely. You know, that's it. That's all yeah, we yeah. need. So we talk about music a lot. She calls me the, the Justin Bieber of the 60s. <laughs> so that's kind of what I was, you know, I was kind of a teen idol during the 60s. And the whole idea of my um, my recording career was, you know, I, in 1964, I, I opened the show for the Beatles, their first concert in Washington, D.C., and after they did the Ed Sullivan show, well, shortly after that, in the spring of that year, I, I, I had joined the Army Reserve. So I, I went to boot, boot camp about April or May of, of that year. So the whole of 1964, I was out of out of the loop. But that was when the British invasion started in America and they were pushing all the American acts off the charts. Uh-huh. And all you'd see on the charts were British records, you know, yeah. Yeah. acts from England, you know, yeah. Jerry and the Pacemakers, the Beatles, of course, you know, Freddie and the Dreamers, you yeah. name it. They were just filling up the charts. I'm telling you now, I'm telling you right away, I'll be saying for many a day, I'm in love with you now. I'm telling you now, I'll say what you want to hear, I'll be saying for many a year, I'm in love with you now. Well, I was thinking in the army, how am I going to compete with these guys? I mean, they're just burning up the charts, and I've got to come up with something really different. So that's when I got the idea to write Sweet Pig. I, I, I called it Soft Rock. I said, I'm going to write something that's so safe. It's going to be, I call it Soft Rock, and it's very safe. DJs back then were looking for things that could play that wouldn't kind of be over the top. You know, they were looking for set, what they called safe records back then. So I wrote Sweet Pea, and when I got out of the service, I went in the studio and recorded it, and it became a huge hit for me. So I was back in the charts again after being in the service. And uh, Sweet Pea was kind of started the bubblegum thing for me. I became like, the, they started calling me the king of bubblegum because I guess the little kids at the skating rinks love Sweet Pea and they love Dizzy and they love all my records. you feel about appealing to that generation? Well, at first I kind of resented it because it was kind of a dig from the DJs, you know, they'd kind of poke fun at me because it was kind of soft music, you know, and they loved the heavy stuff and the folk stuff. So um, at first I resented it, but uh, after a while I just, uh, I, I just embraced it and ran with it. It turned out to be such a wonderful way to entertain because it's like when you go on stage and you have an audience full of young people plus their parents, it's like a family kind of show. And the whole idea of my show is to put a smile on the face of my audience. And it's just a wonderful feeling to have that 
reaction from the crowd, you know, when I sing Sweet Pea or Dizzy, one of my songs. So it worked out well. You must have been on top of the world being this teen idol and, and the father of bubblegum pop in those days. I tell you what, it, it was so, everything moved so fast. You, you, you really weren't, uh, I really wasn't able to enjoy it by the, by the moment, you know. When I look back on it, it's, I'd see it completely differently, you know. I, even the way I dressed and everything. I mean, I look at those pictures and I think, is that me? I mean, I, it's like I, I became a I became a character because of my music. I kind of become, became this character, this bubblegum character, you know. You know, it was it was great. Can't complain. From 62 to uh, the early 70s, my last big hit was Stagger Lee. That was in 71. I was standing on a corner. disco craze started in the 70s and uh it was really hard for me to transition into that you know i just i didn't really care for disco too much and so um you know it kind of put an end to my recording career as far as hits go but although i still record to this day it's just something i love to do look out for the re-released version of dizzy and tommy rose autobiography called cabbage town to tinseltown what is it that your that your granddaughter calls you the the Justin Bieber of, of the sixties? The Justin Bieber of the sixties. Um, I'm not I'm not sure if that's a compliment or not. I, she I think she means that as a compliment, but I'll yeah. I'll take it as a compliment. But thank you, Sandy. It was my pleasure joining you. Up next, blues guitarist Walter Trout with some really great advice. This is a breath of fresh air with Sandy Kay. It's a beautiful day. Welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. Now, you don't have to be into the blues to find my next guest super interesting. He is iconic blues rock guitarist Walter Trout, who knows better than most that no matter how fast or far a man travels, he can never truly outrun his past. I caught up with Walter following the release of his 29th album, but I'll let him tell you his story. I had a liver transplant six years ago and this is the fifth album i've put out since i came back i love making music i just love it more than anything and this one was very personal i think i think it's about as honest as i can write my my previous album was called survivor blues when i did that one the original plan was I was going to do two albums simultaneously. I was going to do an album of old blues songs, and I was going to do an album of all original songs. And I was supposed to record them all at the same time, and they were going to come out as a package deal. I finished the blues album, and I did seven or eight songs of the original album. Then I had to go out on tour. And the tour lasted for months and months, so it, it became, well, let's let's release the blues album, right? So when I got back from the tour and it was time to finish the original album, I listened to it again with fresh ears and threw most of it out and started over and rewrote pretty much the whole thing. 
ordinary madness It's the everyday kind It ain't nothing special It's just there in your mind It's the sadness and the fear And the anger that you feel every day It just lays there in your gut And it won't go away Ordinary madness And it's here inside of me Yes, it's here inside of me That sort of a perfectionist that you're never 100% happy with what's gone before? Well, I can tell you this. I think I'm happier with this record almost than any record I've ever done. Most of the records I do, I listen to them once or twice, then I don't want to hear it because all I hear is, oh, I should have sung that different or I could have done a better solo there. Why did we have that drum beat in this song? It should have been, you know, a different cymbal line or something. This one, I don't get that. I've listened to it a thousand times and I still go, I'm not hearing anything that I would change. I'm really happy with it, but I have to say I worked harder on it. I can give you an example, a ballad on there. It's called My Foolish Pride. And um, the rhythm guitar on that song, I redid maybe four times with four different sounds, four different amplifiers, four different approaches. I would go in and I would spend half a day getting it where I thought it was perfect. Then I would get up the next morning and go, no, that's not it. And uh, originally, I mean, if you listen to it now, it's got a very clean, very pretty rhythm guitar that it's an old Gretsch with a whammy bar. I wanted it to sound kind of like a Buffalo Springfield rhythm guitar bar. Hi. It took me four different tries before I got it right. Sometimes I do my best, but I fail. I know that it happens to everyone. I try to album was pretty special to you before it was even created. You set out with a different mindset from the start. That's true. This album, Ordinary Madness, everything was thought out in advance and there was a lot of planning and then things changed. It was a lot of fun. It was really creative. If you had to pick a favorite tune, which one would you say it was? That would depend on what day you ask me. I can tell you that I just had to go into the local town, which is a, a half an hour drive away today. And on the way back, I listened to uh, Heaven in Your Eyes about six times. I think what moves me about it is that it is truly a um, collaboration between my wife and I. We were sitting in our house in California. I was strumming my acoustic and I said, wow, I have this melody. And it's really pretty. Listen to this melody and listen to these chord changes. And it's almost McCartney-esque. And I said, but it's got all these syllables. It's got all these words. I have no idea what to do with this thing. And she said, well, play it again for me. And I played it again and her eyes glazed over and she walked out of the room and came back a half an hour later and said, here's your lyrics. The music is me, the lyrics are her. It tears me up. If only you could see through my eyes. If only you could feel what I feel. If only we could find our way. 
meet each other in the first place? It was September 29th, it was 1990. I was in Denmark recording my second album, which was called Prisoner of a Dream. And I did a music festival in a little town called Holstebro. We were in a big hall and there were 2,000 people there. And I kept seeing this beautiful blonde haired girl in the back of the room and our eyes were vibing back and forth across the people. And we were just communicating across these people. And she started moving toward the stage and, and the crowd. This is all true. The crowd parted like the Red Sea and she came up and stood in front of the stage and I sang and played to her. I couldn't stop looking at her and I fell over the microphone and I I finally <laughs> just said, hey, you, I've, we have to meet. And um, we went out and we walked around this little Danish village together. And 40 minutes later, I said, you're going to move to America. We're going to get married. We're going to have children and we're going to get old together. And she said, you are crazy. And then I said, and you have no say in this because this is destiny. And uh, a week later, she said, yep. And that was 30 years ago and three kids. What a fantastic story. Kind of weird. It's like right out of a movie, you know. Well, your whole life has been a bit like out of a movie, hasn't it? I mean, what I what I read of you, it's like it's like a complete fairy tale. Yeah, it's uh, it's been interesting, and I'm still going. I mean, even really just being here doesn't really compute that I'm still here because the illness I had. I was in that hospital bed for eight months. I had brain damage. I lost 120 pounds. I didn't recognize my wife or my children. I lost the ability to speak. They finally gave me the, the transplant, the new liver. I, I didn't have a bite of solid food for six months. I had a hose in my nose. And I had to get speech therapy and relearn about talking. I also had not used my legs in eight months, so I had to go. In, originally, when I got out of the hospital, I was in a wheelchair, and then I moved to crutches and a walker, and then I moved, you know, I was in physical therapy a lot. The real bummer that happened for me when I got home, because I had had brain damage, I didn't know how to play the guitar anymore. I had to start over again from scratch and teach myself from the very beginning how to play chords and how to play bar chords and how to play scales and how do you bend a note. I had to do all of it. And I worked on it seven hours a day, every day for a year. And then after not being on a stage for two years, I made my return to the stage at Royal Albert Hall in London. So yeah, it's it was pretty exciting uh, time hey. for me, you know. You certainly did the hard work. It's quite amazing that you've come back better than ever before. What did that experience leave you with? Do you, you obviously must see life very differently having gone through all that. Well, I can tell you your perspective on life changes drastically and your idea of what's important and what's not really important changes drastically. And your appreciation for every moment that you're here changes drastically after you stare death in, in the face every day for months and months and months. And in that liver ward, there were people dying all around me every day. And I, really why I'm here is, I don't know, I go through that all the time. You could always revert to Billy Preston's line that that's the way God planned it. Yeah, yeah. But what is the plan? To me, I think what I came upon, I did an album called Battle Scars when I got back, and that album tells the story. It's the story of the whole thing. It's, and it ends with a song called Gonna Live Again, and that song was me asking the higher power, why have you kept me here? In the last verse, I think I find the reason. I say, I think I know the answer. I think I know the plan. I have the chance to be a better man. Lately I've been wondering why you kept me here for so long With all my indiscretions, all the people that I have done wrong There must be a reason that I cannot 
gigs every night I have a room full of people there and they're listening to me and I tell this story every night and I ask them I want you to understand how important it is that you sign up to be an organ donor because some stranger signed on the dotted line to be an organ donor and that person saved my life and I'm here playing for you now and it's only because of that little gesture that that stranger did and I become a preacher I become an evangelist but my mission and my preaching is organ donation that's the reason I think I've been kept here Walter if you if you had to do it all again if you went through all the same would you do it differently knowing what you know now well that's that's a hard question to answer I know that from eight years old I was going to be a musician and I knew it as I started moving up the ladder and playing with some famous people it became heroin and cocaine and alcohol and all that crap you know which I've been clean and sober for 33 years now but as far as doing it the same in that song almost gone there's a line that says I wish I could go back and do it over knowing what I know. I regret people that I did wrong in the past. So yeah, I do have regrets. If you don't have regrets, you don't have a conscience. old I sat in the living room with my parents and watched Elvis on Ed Sullivan so I saw in my life the birth of rock and roll with Elvis and Chuck Berry and Little Richard and, and Jerry Lee Lewis and Fats Domino I was there and Buddy Holly I was a kid when that stuff was happening and I watched that morph into the Beatles and the Stones and Dylan for me there was there was never anything else one thing that I was very lucky from the very beginning when I told my parents it is a kid I want to be a performer maybe I'll go on Broadway or maybe I'll be a jazz trumpet they'd go oh that would be great Walter and then when I said at, at age 14 after hearing Mike Bloomfield on the first Paul Butterfield album I went to my mother and I said now I know what I'm going to do with my life mom I'm going to be a blues guitar player. And she just said, I think that's wonderful. Go do it. Give it everything you've got. Yeah, that's amazing to have that support from a young age. Walter Trout, thank you so much for chatting with me. Thank you very much, Sandy. And take care, stay safe and healthy so that when I get back, you're ready to come and rock out with me and my band. I have to tell you, he puts on an awesome show. Don't go anywhere. We'll be back in just a sec with Herman's Hermits, Peter Noon. This is a breath of fresh air with Sandy Kay. It's a beautiful day. So glad you're still with me. I started out telling you today that I wanted to share a few of my favourite conversations. And the chat that I had with my final guest certainly fits into that category. You probably remember Peter Noon as the lead singer and founder of that 60s English band Herman's Hermits. He was also an accomplished TV and stage actor. 
To my greatest surprise, Peter turned out to be one of the funniest and most uplifting guys I've had the pleasure of speaking to. I caught up with him on the occasion of his 75th birthday and giggled my way through this chat. All my life I wanted to be older, you know, when I was a boy and I, they wouldn't let me have a beer because I wasn't old enough. I wanted to be older and, I, and, I, and now I've got there, I kind of like it. I sort of like being a bit older than everybody else. I can make jokes about myself, you know, like give me a lift. Yeah, you know, like oh, ladies open the door for me and stuff like that now, you know what I mean? Stuff that never happened when I was a kid. <laughs> I see that you're going out on tour again in a minute. Yeah, I've got another 11 years. I used to say 10 years, but now it's 11 because we lost one. So I've got to make up for it by doing more years. So another 11 years and I'll quit. You're really going to keep working for another 11 years? I am if I can. As long as, you know, my dad is Mick Jagger and look, he's still going. (laughs) I didn't realise that you were 15 when you started with Hermit's Hermits. Yeah. Well, I started before them. That's when we became famous, sort of, when we first... You know, we when I was 15, we were playing at the Cavern and we were, you know, with all those famous Liverpool bands and, and not in a competition, but, you know, head to head. And we were the youngest by about 10 years. And look at that 10 years. This all these years later, I'm still 10 years younger than them. And now it feels better. I also didn't realise the name Herman's Hermits actually came about because they say that you looked like. They said I looked like Sherman at, and Professor Beebody. <laughs> Tell me that story. They thought when I put my body holly glasses on, they thought I looked like Sherman. So we went with Herman, Herman and the Hermits. So who actually came up with the name? It was in a pub. We used to rehearse in this pub. And um, I was doing a what I thought was a brilliant body holly impersonation. <laughs> and I had these horn rimming glasses and he walked up to the little stage and he said, who the bloody hell is that then? And I looked at him and I said, you idiot, it's Buddy Holly, can't you tell? And he goes, you don't look like Buddy Holly, you look, look like Herman from the Bullwinkle show. And everybody laughed. And he said, what are you lot laughing at? You can be the bloody hermits, you dress like hermits already. And that was it. The name stuck. We got our name. You know, and I can't remember the chap's name, which is really, really bad luck. You know, because it'd be nice to give him some credit for finding the name, but we just never went back to that pub again. And Herman's Hermits sold over 60 million recordings. That's insane. Yeah, we suddenly got famous. You know, the name change was just at the right time because we were playing at the Cavern and we'd been Pete Novak and the Heartbeats and everything. And the name was sort of silly, like Freddie and the Dreamers and Jerry and the Pacemakers and all that. That was all the bands that were around at the time. And we just went with it, Herman and the Hermits. And since then, I've been trying to be Peter New. had a good run there you know like in 1965 we sold more records than anybody at any other act in the world you know it just was one of those weird years we did 360 concerts we did a couple in australia and on the way back from australia we stopped in hawaii and i met elvis presley and in the story elvis tells that i was on a herman's hermits won a 360 day world tour and i said well that's because we're young we can do that which was not a nice thing to say because it made him made me sound like he was old and he really wasn't. He was in. He was, he was probably about 30. But, you know, when you're 17, 25 years old. So you actually spent a bit of time with him? Yeah, he was a lovely man. He, he was very easygoing and very great comedian. He was, see, people never got to interview him. So they don't know him. You know, he was always like hidden behind the Colonel Parker thing who played him like some country bumpkin because that's what they wanted to, they didn't want him doing interviews and stuff like that. So I was lucky, I think I did one of the three interviews with him and it was a really terrible interview. My sister asked asked me to ask him, does he dye his hair? And I kept looking at his hair all the way through the interview. They get, let me interview him. I did an interview for British radio and for uh, American radio, which was like the British invasion meets Elvis Presley. And it was, uh, you know, pretty amazing, but I was rubbish. It was a rubbish interview. I'm still embarrassed when I hear it. Well, you get better with age, don't you? And experience. But what was the answer to if he dyed his hair? Well, I didn't ask him that. I couldn't ask him that, but you could just look at it and you know he did. His hair was perfect, black, number four. Was your sister angry with you that you didn't get the answer? No, she was just really impressed that I'd met Elvis Presley. Mm, Awesome. Back to Herman's Hermits, though, Peter. That's a great story. 
You had all of those hits, Too Many For Me To Name, and you wrote and sung all of them, didn't you? Well, I sung on all the hits, and I wrote some of the good ones, but I was Herman, and they were the Hermits. We made fantastic, fun records, and they were of the moment, Sandy. We made records for that week, you know. They were really feel-good songs, weren't they? Well, we felt good. What more could, well, how could, good could it be to be 17 in a rock and roll band that's famous all over the world? Which was your favourite song? I liked I'm Into Something Good. You know, the first one we made, we were all kids. Good, I like There's a Kind of Hush. And I liked it was number one in Australia, My Sentimental Friend. That was my best performance on the record. On the floor, the people dance around Moving close together But they're all alone in the corner There's the girl I once knew Who broke me into never got tired because we were too young to get tired and we didn't know the difference you know we came from working class families who never did anything except work you know they probably went for a walk on the beach in Blackpool to get some fresh air on a weekend on a Sunday afternoon and they'd never been anywhere and never except all they did the two generations before my grandparents only worked to eat and feed their children and hope that their children had a better life so when we came out of the box, we were these workers, like one boy in the band, his dad was a policeman, you know, a constable, a regular policeman. Uh, one guy's dad was a telephone, you know, dog holes for the telephone company, you know, and we were all boys straight out of the thing. You know, in those days, when you were 15, if you left school, you had to have a job. You couldn't leave school and hang around at your mum's and dad's house for a few years. So uh, my job was, before I left school, I had about three jobs because I came from that background where everybody needed to be working. You know, you're 15, you get a go, or you got to go to college, you know, university. Oh, no, no, I'll get a job. Anything but that. Exactly, because we didn't know any better. Of course. So we were straight out of, like, straight out of school. They'd pick us up in the van and we'd go to, to what they were called engagement or bookings in those days. Now they're called gigs. And we'd leave, leave our, you know, I lived at my grandparents' house. My mother and father lived in Liverpool, but my, my band was in Manchester, so I lived at my grandparents' house and they would pick me up there in the van and we'd go to gigs or they'd pick me up at school, but they'd always drop me off at night at my grandmother's house. And the good thing about my grandparents is they were both completely deaf. So after nine o'clock, they'd be fast asleep and you could bring girls back, you could have parties there, you could turn the record player up to 19 and they never woke up, never knocked on the floor, nothing. They're completely deaf. And obviously they couldn't afford a... a a hearing aid. Now I'm old. You see, I, you don't realize this stuff when you're young. I realize now that they were very poor. We didn't know any difference. So we didn't realize that they were very poor and that they lived from hand to mouth kind of things. You know, like if, if there was no money on Thursday night from the pay packet, if granddad was late coming home, you had sugar butters or condensed milk sandwiches for dinner. Yuck. Yeah. And they hadn't even got Vegemite yet then. Wow. I was in this band called Pete Novak and the Heartbeats, my second ever band. But we played a gig one night and we got paid. And on the way home, we had enough money to fill the tank of the guy's car, van that he'd borrowed from work, to fill it up with petrol. And we, could, we went to a fish and chip shop and we had enough for six bags of chips. No fish, no peas, nothing. Oh, isn't that gorgeous? Yeah, we couldn't believe it. We're prof- we said, we're professionals. We've made more money than we've spent to come to work. That didn't happen often. Why Peter Novak? That wasn't your name. You know, I got in this band because the lead singer didn't show up and they asked me to join them for the night. I joined them, I got in the band and they said, we need to change your name because uh, it doesn't sound like show business. So I think the bass player from that band said, you're Pete Novak. And the drummer was called Steve Titterington. And he, of course, had to change his name because no one wants to be famous with a name like Titterington, right? So he changed his name. And then we all changed our names to sound like we were in show business. So the noon is the changed name? Yeah. 
Well, I was always Peter Noon. My mum liked Peter Noon. She thought that was a good name. So you're really young. You're with this band. You're playing at pubs and you're eating chips, no fish. How did it turn out that you could then start to afford as much fish as you wanted? Well, first of all, we got the batter. We didn't have the before you could get to the fish. You had to get to the next stage, which is just the batter, which the chippy was going to throw away. So then what happened was we started to play at the cavern. Our friends in other groups made it, like Jerry and the Pacemakers, and Jerry would take us out on his tours, five pounds a night we'd get for all of us. You know, Jerry would do things like we'd show up and he'd go, oh, you're the lead singer, let me show you your dressing room. And he'd take me down the corridor of the back of the theatre and he'd open the door to the gentleman's toilet and push me in there, you know. And we, we eventually, we built a following. It started with Margaret at the cabin. There was a girl called Margaret who came to every show. And bit by bit, we built a following. And in those days, when you got a following, when you had enough people who were excited to pay to see you, then the record labels got interested. Everybody else in Liverpool and Manchester already had a record deal. So it was our turn. And we made great records together. We knew Paul Jones from Manfred Mann, and we knew Eric Burden from The Animals, and we knew Jerry Mars, and we knew a couple of the Beatles, and we knew Cliff Rich. You know, we just all knew each other because it's a small country. And the next thing you know, we put out I'm Into Something Good, and a disc jockey at 5.30 played I'm Into Something Good by Herman's Hermits on the radio. And, you know, we realized at that moment that that's all we'd ever wanted was just to hear our song on the radio. Oh, how lovely. What I found was that the people in beat groups, as we were called then, their families were very nice people. We'd do a, a gig at the Cavern in Liverpool, and Aaron Williams, who was in a band called the Mersey Beats, his mum would invite everybody back to his, everybody who's at the Cavern back to his house, and she'd make cups of tea and egg and chips, egg and chips and stuff like that. And Egg and chips. <laughs> yeah, with that Mother's Pride bread and margarine and all that. It was like heaven, because we never ate. Oh. So she looked after you? Yes, yeah, and for, there wasn't just me. There was loads of people there. She had loads of sons. Aaron had all these Kieran and Kevin and all these Irish people sounding names. And she would feed all the groups, which is like, you know, there's nothing like that anymore. She was like the most kind person. And Steve Titchington, our drummer, his sister was a police officer. So we used to rehearse at his house because no one ever complained because she was a cop. You could have played at your place with your grandparents, though. Oh, he did a lot. They never heard him once. If they were in the room, they couldn't hear him. What a fabulous period of time. My goodness, the world has changed so much since then, hasn't it? Yeah, but, you know, there's still loads of nice people and you've got to count on those to fix everything. But I do remember the beginning of Home and Summits in Manchester and Liverpool. There were loads and loads of nice people who were so, so supportive. I mean, we were horrible little boys, you know. We were skinny, 110-pound weaklings. And Home and Summits became popular with other be other bands because we'd been in a few fights oh and we'd actually won a couple of them so people were saying oh that's oh that's okay it's okay them hermits you want them on your team you know it's pretty good huh but you were pretty clean though too you weren't into copious amounts of drugs and alcohol through those years either were you we never could afford any but we did do the copious amounts of alcohol but you know you grow out of that. i believe everybody's got to do that on their way to wherever it's I think you just got to go through those periods. And, and if you're lucky at the end, if it didn't kill you, you're stronger. Peter, you went through to the 70s constantly touring with hit after hit after hit, and then the band broke up. What caused the break? We didn't really broke up. We decided to take a, what's called now a hiatus. We wanted to do other things. I'd been offered all these like American Broadway musicals and things. I couldn't do anything when I was in a group because what would they do? So, and there was all that talk about if you stop touring with the group, they won't be able to pay their mortgage. So I'd stayed in the band quite a bit longer than I needed to. We all broke off on our own and everyone went and did great things like Keith opened a recording studio. And I came to America because I figured I always wanted to be in America. All my heroes, they're all American. I liked Cliff Richard. But I never bought any of his records. I just liked him. And, and he was a big part of my life before I was in the band because, you know, we're all going on a summer holiday and living doll and move it and all that stuff. It's everything, everything a teenager dreams of. He was the story of my life, that guy. We're all going on a summer holiday. No more working for a week or two. Fun and laughter on a summer holiday. No more worries for Peter Noon hosts his very own satellite radio show. You know, I'm good friends with a lot of people from that time, like Eric Burden and, 
like Cliff Richard. You know, I talk about them and I tell stories. Some of them are lies. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Exactly. I love your attitude. Peter Noon, thank you so much for talking with me. Hey, Sandy, it's nice talking to you. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed hearing from today's guests as much as I enjoyed talking with them. Take care of yourself till we meet again, won't you? I'll see you same time next week. Bye now. Because it's a beautiful day. You've been listening to A Breath of Fresh Air with Sandy Kay. Beautiful day. Oh, baby, any day that you're gone away. It's a beautiful day.